If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, give Dad the gift that guarantees him a great morning every day. That's Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's Best Pair You'll Ever Wear or its free guarantee. Get 30% off gifts for Dad on select Father's Day styles at TommyJohn.com. Save 30% at TommyJohn.com. See site for details. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to the first part of BBC History Magazine's March 2009 podcast... I'm Sue Wingrove, and I'm the acting editor of the magazine. And I'm Rob Attar, section editor of the magazine. Coming up in this podcast... Transfer criminal conversations were usually brought about by an aggrieved husband who felt that he could get some sort of financial reparations from the man who had effectively damaged his property and his wife, of course, being his property. That was Hallie Rubenhold talking about an 18th century tale of adultery and greed that helped introduce changes to the divorce laws of Britain. That, that's the, the problem people have with Richard. How could a good man become such a, an evil monster in overnight? And that was David Hipshon who will be telling us about the brutal slaying of Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth. We'll hear more on these topics in a moment, and of course they're explored in the March 2009 issue of BBC History magazine, which features Richard III on the cover. And if you're not familiar with the magazine, it is produced by BBC magazines in the United Kingdom. It comes out monthly, and you can get it delivered to you anywhere in the world. We'll give details of how to subscribe later on in this podcast. Now, historian Hallie Rubenhold is the author of The Covent Garden Ladies, Pimp General Jack and the Extraordinary Story of Harris's List. Her latest book is Lady Worsley's Whim, an 18th century tale of sex, scandal and divorce. In our March issue, she describes how the Worsley's divorce case helped to discredit a law that treated married women as chattels. I spoke to her earlier to find out more about this sordid and scandalous affair. In 1780, Joshua Reynolds exhibited one of his most glorious paintings, a full-length portrait of the beautiful Lady Worsley, dressed in a blazing red riding habit and standing in a proud posture with one hand on her hip, the other swishing a riding crop. Her head is turned to one side so we can see her aristocratic profile and her full skirt accentuates her tiny waist. Now, Reynolds also painted one of her husband, Sir Richard, in his red regimental uniform of the South Hampshire militia, and the two paintings were intended to be a pair. But, in fact, they were never hung together. And here to tell us why is historian Hallie Rubenhold. Hello, Hallie. Hello. 
I believe the troubles began when Lady Worsley fell in love with her husband's best friend. What happened next? Yes, they were neighbours on the Isle of Wight. Uh, Sir Richard Worsley owned the estate of Appledurkham, and George Morris Bissett was his neighbour, and he owned uh, Knight and Gorges. And the two, the two gentlemen met each other in the course of the 1780 election and at the same time Lady Worsley was introduced to Morris Bissett as well and the three of them became very good friends and uh, perhaps even more than very good friends well we know they became more than very good friends the relationship between the two men is rather questionable as well we know that they took a house together in Maidstone and lived as a, a type of menagerie and that happened at the time when uh, Sir Richard Worsley, uh, his regiment of the South Hampshire militia, was stationed at Cox Heath, where a number of the militias were stationed um, in order to drill over the summer in uh, preparation for a possible French invasion. And, and they enjoyed a very close relationship. As I said, they lived together in this house. And eventually, Lady Worsley and George Bissett, after she became pregnant with his child and uh, gave birth to it, and uh, Sir Richard actually gave the child his name and recognized it as his, although he knew it wasn't by his issue, Lady Worsley and George Bissett decided that although the menage a in which they were living was, was nice, they actually preferred to go off, the two of them. And so they eloped in uh, November 1781, and they ran off to London together in the hope that Sir Richard Worsley would begin divorce proceedings. And, of course, he didn't do exactly that, and he also began proceedings for something called criminal conversation as well. So they, he didn't actually do what they had expected him to do at all, which rather threw a spanner into the works. So he entered into this criminal conversation suit. Now, what was criminal conversation? Criminal conversation is actually a rather antiquated legal way of saying uh, adultery or um, having sex with another man's wife. Trials for criminal conversation were usually brought about by an aggrieved husband who felt that he could get some sort of financial reparations from the man who had effectively damaged his property and his wife, of course, being his property by soiling her, by potentially turning her into a, a, a really kind of a spoiled good, if you think about it, because the integrity um, of a woman's virtue, as it was called in the 18th century, or chastity, um, was really paramount to ensuring that your line of succession wasn't corrupted. And so... If a woman had had sex with another man, there was absolutely, you know, nothing really to guarantee that um, you didn't have a cuckoo in your nest. So um, that, that was one reason why uh, adultery at this time was found upon, particularly in the 18th century, when people were very worried about dynastic issues um, and, and the, the exchange of property and money. Criminal conversation was um, also a way in which a husband who had felt that his honor had been damaged um, by this interloper could actually restore his honor in a very public uh, environment. Um, while 
dueling was increasingly frowned upon in the 18th century, um, there had to be some other way in which the honor of, of a man who had wronged them by him could be resurrected. And so trials in court came to take the place of, of duels between gentlemen. So it was a very uh, public form of um, almost revenge retribution. Um, it, was a, it was a way of settling it to everyone's satisfaction, uh, to the husband's satisfaction. So the trial of Worsley versus Bishop was heard on the 21st of February 1782. So this was very much a public trial, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, it was. It was something that the general public could go and witness, um, and not just the Worsley's criminal conversation trial, but criminal conversation trials in general were considered a type of public spectacle, and they took place in a corner of Westminster Hall, and uh, it was wide open for anybody to walk in whenever they wanted to. And, of course, everybody knew about the scandal of, of Lady Worsley running off of George because the newspapers had beaten them to it and had trumpeted this news all over, uh, all over the broadsheets. And so there was quite an enormous turnout. And in the gallery, there were, oh gosh, a large variety of people, everyone from uh, journalists to uh, court reporters who were taking transcripts of, of the proceedings, which they would then sell on to a publisher, to ladies of some ill repute who liked to make public appearances at these things, to obviously friends and family, um, well-wishers of the two parties concerned, to, you know, just curious individuals who wanted to see what was going on. So it was quite a circus, and it played to a packed house. It was like a type of theatre, really. It was a real uh, washing of dirty laundry in public, wasn't it? Um, and it became known as one of the most infamous cases of criminal conversation in history. Um, why was this a particularly vicious uh, battle? It was, a, it was a very, very ugly battle, and... Um, it, there are a number of cases in the 18th century where battles continue outside of the courtroom. You know, this was a time when literacy was increasing, as were the amount of printed publications at this time, so people could read more about issues, they could engage in debates, and anybody who had an axe to grind was going to use this to their advantage. So one of the reasons why the Worthies trial became so well-known was not only was it so incredibly scandalous because there was a very unorthodox line of defense, yes, line of defense for George Bissett that was taken, which basically publicly ruined Lady Worsley's character. But Lady Worsley and Sir Richard Worsley took their battle outside of the courtroom. This continued to rage for months, and there were pamphlets published where she was uh, giving her side of events and then he was defending himself. But then everybody else wanted a piece of the action as well. Anything to come out of this trial, any sort of scandal, would sell publications. And so there were a number of hacks 
who um, wanted to provide the, the public with further details of what was going on, and so they wrote further adventures of, of Sir Richard and Lady Worsley. Um, you know, whether these are true is, is open to question. The transcripts were selling like hotcakes, and people were queuing up around the corners of the um, booksellers to get their hands on them. Um, it went into at least eight editions. And then on top of that, it seemed to really capture the public imagination, and especially the imagination of engravers and caricaturists. And so you had an entire series of caricatures which came out of this trial and lampoons. And um, some of them are very, very well known, and uh, some um, particularly well known by ones by um, Gilray. Now, I believe a key event was what happened at a uh, Maidstone bathhouse. The Maidstone whim was the event on which the entire trial hinged. And basically, what had happened was that on a very warm summer's day, or late summer's day in September, Sir Richard and um, George Bissett and Lady Worsley had gone down to the Maidstone bathhouse, a cold bathhouse, um, for basically for a swim. And there was a, a, a lady's entrance and a gentleman's entrance. And Sir Richard and Bissett went round to um, the gentleman's and Lady Worsley went into the ladies and they had their swim and then they came back um, to wait for her outside of the ladies' entrance. And, um, and they thought it would be rather fun to, um, you know, just sort of have a, have a bit of a lark. And Sir Richard knocked on the door and said that he was going to show George Bissett a view of his wife through the bathhouse window. Well, of course, you know, this was, this was all just, you know, part of the course. You know, there's three people living in a menage a trois, and, you know, there was nobody around, and they thought this was perfectly fine. And so um, Sir Richard lifted up George Bissett uh, to the window of the bathhouse where he could see Lady Worsley dressing, and um, he held him in place for five minutes. What they forgot, and what many people in the 18th century tend to forget, um, were the presence of servants. And in the bathhouse was the bathing woman called Mary Marriott. And Mary Marriott saw everything that happened. Um, and it was her testimony that Sir Richard helped George Bissett to a view of his wife and therefore was very much aware of this affair, that he was not an innocent party in it at all. Um, uh, her evidence actually turned this criminal conversation trial. And where Sir Richard Worsley had asked for astronomical damages of £20,000, um, this evidence given by Mary Marriott uh, basically proved that he shouldn't really get anything, and so he was only awarded nominal damages of one shilling. Um, I mean, there's a wonderful um, Gilray cartoon of the bathhouse incident showing uh, Sir Richard hoisting Bissett on his shoulders and uh, Bissett's having a jolly good look through the window. And the caption underneath reads, Sir Richard worse than sly, exposing his wife's bottom. Oh, fie. Hallie, thanks very much for talking to us today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And that was Hallie Rubenhold, talking about her new book, Lady Worsley's Whim, published by Chateau and Windus. In a moment, we'll be taking a look at Richard III's brutal death at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485. But first, here are some details of how you can subscribe to BBC History magazine. Yes, Sue. UK listeners who subscribe to BBC History magazine before the 31st of March can save £1 on every issue. That works out at just £2.60 an issue. For more details, go to www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine or call us on 0844 844 0250 and quote the code POD0309. And if you're listening to this podcast outside the UK, you'll be pleased to learn that you can get the magazine sent to you anywhere in the world. Just call us on plus 44 1795 44728 for details. Now, Richard III is perhaps one of British history's most controversial figures, largely because he's suspected of having murdered his nephews, the princes in the Tower. Richard was himself killed at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, and earlier the magazine's editor, David Musgrove, spoke to historian David Hipshon about the events leading up to the King's betrayal and his brutal death on that fateful day. David, you've, you've just been working on a, a new book about Richard III um, and you've written a feature for us in the, in, the, in the magazine about the Battle of Bosworth and what happened to Richard there. So perhaps you could just try and paint me a verbal picture of what was happening in August 1485 as, as we run up towards the Battle of Bosworth. Right. Well, firstly, Richard's only been on the throne two years and things are rather unsettled. And uh, I think that two-year period is rather interesting because uh, Henry Tudor, he's landed at Milford Haven uh, a few weeks earlier, and he's coming to try to take the throne off Richard. Well, it's rather odd because he doesn't stand a chance, and I don't think anyone who was a betting man would have betted against Richard winning the battle that's about to happen. He's king, he's the brother of the former king, he's had uh, military victories before in Scotland and he's uh, a, a, a former, a foremost, I would say, commander of men. So this man, Henry Tudor, has never been in battle in his life, has uh, got a few followers and he's sort of meandering his way across the Welsh border in towards Leicester where um, Richard is going to wait for him, he's moved from Nottingham very quickly and it's a whole very, very odd situation. But Richard usurped the throne two years earlier, and he killed his nephews in order to do so. Now, that, I think, is the, the, the problem, because once you've got a usurpation at any time in history, you've upset the apple cart and you've made opportunities available for any chancer. And I think this is what Henry Tudor is in 1485. There are opportunities. The glittering prize of uh, monarchies is there for anyone. Buckingham, who supported Richard in his usurpation in 1483, rebels against him 
And in that rebellion, you find Henry Tudor's mother making alliance with Richard III's niece. Now that, I think, is crucial because suddenly Henry Tudor is a viable alternative to, to Richard. But this has always happened. Every time you have a usurpation, a few years afterwards, someone tries to go for the throne, and they're usually squashed. It happens when Henry IV comes to the throne in 1399. He has to get rid of Hotspur. Uh, it does so at Buffett Shrewsbury. It happens after Bosworth when, um, Richard, uh, when Henry Tudor himself fights the battle at Stoke in 1487. No one really tends to think about that battle. So I think what's happening is a kind of inevitable reaction to a usurpation, you could say. But it should have been snuffed out and it shouldn't have led to a major battle. OK, so, so we get to Bosworth, we get to this, this, this major battle. And that yeah. pitches Henry Tudor, as you say, against Richard III. Now, yeah. now the, the, the Bosworth is famous for, for being Richard's end. It's, it's when Richard, Richard meets, meets his demise. So That's right. what's, what's the traditional view for the reason for, for Richard III's uh, untimely end at Bosworth? Yes, what I think historians tend to do and have done rather carelessly over the years is associate Richard's death at Bosworth in battle with his seizing the throne two years earlier, where he has to put aside his nephews. And they assume that the reason he loses at Bosworth is because he hasn't got much support because of the horrendous deed. And even though we're living in brutal times in the 15th century, just at the end of the Wars of the Roses, nevertheless, even then, they see it as a dreadful crime because his nephew, Edward, was only 12 and he was innocent. You can't blame him for anything. He hadn't had a chance to prove himself even incompetent. So it's a crime. And they suggest that that's why Richard didn't have much support, particularly among the gentry, they say, at Bosworth. And that's why Henry Tudor was able to win. Hmm. That's a sort of traditional view. And I, I suppose that's all part of the the, the general blackening of, of Richard's reputation, which, is, which has perhaps happened over the years from, from Shakespeare onwards, I suppose. So, so how, how are you revising that view? What do you see that's different? Well, the fact is that Richard had plenty of support at Bosworth. The crucial problem for him was he didn't have the right support. And the reason for that was he'd annoyed two of the protagonists, that is Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, and Thomas Lord Stanley. These two magnates were two out of three major magnates that were fighting for Richard. So they are rather crucial. But the reason they don't support him at Bosworth is not because they don't like him for having killed his nephew. It's because of their own self-interest entirely. And what's more, Henry Percy's lack of participation is controversial. He might have participated if he could have done. I think the battle just went adrift and he couldn't quite follow it. So we'll even leave him out of the equation. He doesn't like Richard because Richard is taking all his authority in the north. But it's the other guy, Thomas Stanley, who's famous for swinging battles and switching. He's a famous fence-sitter, a trimmer. He has been throughout the Wars of the Roses. He and his brother William have done this throughout the Wars of the Roses. They've decided which side to support when they've seen which side is winning. But he's got particular reasons for disliking Richard, and he takes advantage of a, an opportunity that just happens to arise in the moment on the battlefield to do the deed, come in and kill Richard, throw his forces against his own king. And he does it for particular reasons. His power in Cheshire and South Lancashire has been challenged by Richard. Mm. And that's, it's, so it's, it's, it's sort of a, a slightly provincial um, uh, issue, isn't it? It's, it's not really so much of a national concern then. I think that's right. I think 
um, Richard has got around him uh, a, a bunch of highly loyal northern gentry. He's had to use those because um, basically he hasn't had time to build up what we call an affinity. Uh, his brother did that, Edward IV, by marrying Elizabeth Woodville controversially and flooding the court with all her relatives. Richard hasn't had an opportunity to secure men loyal to himself. He tried, but the rebellion of Buckingham in 1483 proved that the old adherents of his brother were not going to swing to him. So he uses his northerners, and these are very powerful gentry. Uh, they can muster about three or 400 men each, and they are long-time, long-serving friends of Richard. But he's been promoting them into posts round Stanley's territory in Lancashire and Cheshire, and he doesn't like that Stanley. In fact, there have been feuds going on there between Stanley and particular family in Richard's entourage, the Harringtons, which I think explodes into the death of Richard at Bosworth Field. James Harrington is by Richard at the battle, and so is Robert Harrington. And Stanley sees the chance, and it's just too good to miss. And by killing those Harringtons, he gains uh, quite a substantial amount of authority on the uh, Lancashire border. Okay. Now, have you um, studied any new documents? Have you found any new sources to support this? Or is this a, a, a different reading of, of, the, uh, of the normal sources that historians would look at for this period? Well, this arose out of... I was doing a, a dissertation under Rosemary Horrocks at Cambridge in about 2002, and um, she directed me towards the National Archives where the Duchy of Lancaster records kept. And I was just reading through those. They haven't been printed or transcribed, as it happens. And it was quite clear that there was a major dispute going on between Thomas, Lord Stanley, and the Harrington brothers, James and Robert, over a particular um, place, Hornby Castle in Lancashire. And it rumbled on and on, and it, I kept finding this. And I was wondering why no one had sort of made more of it. In fact, my supervisor, James Rosemary Horrocks, does actually mention it in her, her book, uh, Richard III, um, A Study in Service. But it's the implications of it sort of slowly dawned, I think, and then I, I realised this story needed to be told. OK. And my, my final point, which I would, I would put to anyone who's, who's telling us about Richard III in the magazine, is, and I'm sure you'll have a view on this, is, is why on earth this man still maintains such a hold on people today? There are, you know, there are several Richard III societies, and yes. any mention of him will, uh, yes, will, will no doubt um, you know, lead, to, lead to cries of, of, of foul play or, or, or good cheer about him. So, so yeah. what is it about him that, that makes well, him... Well, I think so it's this, that until he seizes the throne in 1483, he's been an impeccably courageous servant of the crown of his brother, Edward IV. He's a man who believes in justice. Even during his reign, um, his only parliament in 1484 passes some significant acts which help common people. He begins what later became the court of requests. Uh, it's a council of requests in his reign. He, he allows bail to people accused of crimes. Previously, they could just be banged up and all their property taken. So he's doing good things. And people can't really understand, I think, and this is a fascination, this the dichotomy. How can such a, a man of integrity and probity, a servant, a man who's loyal, suddenly turn against all those principles, seize his nephew, both his nephews, put them in the tower, the princes in the tower, do them to death, um, supposedly, although there's no evidence, actually, of his involvement in that. Um, and then... Um, become this monster, this Tudor monster. Surely they, 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 
that, that's the, the problem people have with Richard. How could a good man become such a, an evil monster in overnight? And I don't think there's ever going to be a real resolution to that. I think that uh, I can understand why he did what he did in 1483. It was a matter of security, and I don't think he wanted the Wars of the Roses to carry on again, which they would have probably done under Edward V. But nevertheless, uh, we've got to think of Edward V. He was an innocent lad, and I think that's the fundamental issue. It's, it's fascinated generations, because that act uh, sort of has, has, has kind of obliterated his previous record. And just a very final point then, just what, what's, your, what's your take on, on Richard III? Is he, is he the, the, the hunchback monster or is he a, a good man, really? I think he was a good man uh, who attempted to do his best, but he is a medieval man. He is a 15th century man, and he's not a pussycat, this man. He's, uh, he simply wasn't going to tolerate uh, a return, I think, to the form of factionalism. And I think also he wanted to live the life that his father, Richard Duke of York, uh, attempted to live, uh, which is putting people first. So I, I'm, I tend to be, I think, um, favourable towards Richard. David Hipsham, many thanks. Thanks, Dave. And that was our editor, David Musgrove, talking to David Hipshon, whose book, Richard III and the Death of Chivalry, is to be published by the History Press. You can find out more by reading his feature in the March issue of BBC History magazine. That brings us to the end of this podcast from BBC History magazine. For more on these topics, plus all our other features, do look out for the March issue of the magazine. You might also want to check out our website, where you can subscribe to the magazine, buy recommended history books through our BBC History bookstore, or download previous podcasts. The address is www.bbchistorymagazine.com.